this morning, Shauna, I went on a really long walk with my new puppy, Comet, and I was listening to a podcast um, about the fashion industry. And in particular, it was about Andre Leon Talley, who recently um, passed away. And he was the creative director at Vogue, uh, African-American queer man. Um, and, you know, I don't know anything about the fashion industry. I certainly would not be one of those people that folks would consider <laughs> fashionable, I don't think. But it was very enlightening just to learn a little bit more about him, but also to understand his role in the fashion industry and how poorly he was treated and how silenced he was in terms of the ways in which he could communicate his positionality, his experiences, the racism, the homophobia that he experienced. Mm. It was pretty awful. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I think this whole silencing piece is a major theme for certain groups. I mean, we've got so many examples of this in past and recent news. I mean, I'm, I'm even reflecting on a former Miss America that was silenced in her role. And now we have, you know, basically everyone kind of saying, no, you can't talk about certain issues or certain books or certain writing. So I think there's something we need to explore about this whole silencing piece because it's it's very problematic and it only seems to happen to people who are not white or not male. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, we, I think we need to take a look at this. So let's dive in. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So, yes, Andre Leon Talley, I was very saddened to hear about his passing. I wasn't a huge follower, but I knew exactly who he was as soon as I heard the name. Um, Apparently he passed uh, from a heart attack as well as um, some COVID-19 complications. And so uh, I don't know what his vaccination status was, but that really shouldn't matter. He's not with us any longer. Um, And so for me, I think it's really interesting. Of course, whenever anyone passes, we find out more and more about their life. Uh, things that they may or may not have wanted us to know, that type of thing. But, you know, this is one example uh, of uh, someone who has multiple oppressed identities that was being silenced in his work. And now we're seeing it all over the place, Lisa. I I wasn't sure if you saw uh, the most recent uh, book banning. Once again, here we go. Oh, goodness. Um, Yeah, yeah. Banning um, Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. And then Mouse, which was a book written um, about the Holocaust by a young person for young people. And so, you know, for me, I'm just, this just flies against my sensibilities on a lot of different things Mm -hmm, when it comes to mm -hmm. censorship and the control of censorship that really bothers me because I am always deeply interested in who's making the censorship decision because they're the one that wants to hold the power, right? Yeah. Yeah. Bothersome. Yeah, and I think um, we do see censorship in the endurance sport field in a number of ways, and certainly we can circle back to that. But what is interesting to me is what is being censored. So you mentioned a couple of books there. Mm, The uh, Holocaust mm -hmm. um, narrative just blows my mind. Like, what could you possibly want to withhold there um, from children who really need to learn about it? 
Um, but right. in what in Washington, there was a high school that actually voted to ban To Kill a Mockingbird. But the reason for that was there were a number mm. of teachers of uh, um, mixed racial identities, I believed, who felt that the narrative in that book um, perpetuated notions of the white savior, which we've talked about on the podcast before. And yes. the racism yes. in the book was too much um, in terms of what it could do, what message it could send to children who are reading it, even though perhaps a critical dialogue might be useful, they felt that the negatives outweighed mm-hmm. the positives from it, which was not mm-hmm. a reasoning I was expecting. Um, you know, we're not yeah. seeing that as reasons for banning books. We're seeing that the banning of the books is, oh my goodness, children can't possibly learn um, that racism exists um, because right. that will make white people look bad. And that wasn't the reason in this particular instance. Right, right, right. And, you know, I wonder sometimes, Lisa, whether, you know, white and or male dominated thinking folks are afraid that if their kids find out what great, 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 great whoever did in their family, that they might just burn this whole thing down. I mean, like, I, I would... I'm imagining, I'm imagining, I know I can't put both feet in fully, but I'm imagining if I found out that my great, 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 whatever was an active part of disenfranchising certain people, I'd be pissed off at the whole world. I'd be embarrassed. I'd be, but I would be more so angry because I know I'm not an active part now, but I've probably benefited a whole lot from it. And so therefore you've kept these secrets away from me that I need to know, period. And that that's yeah. problematic. And I don't know, and forgive me if this is going to be controversial. I don't know, but I'm just imagining and putting analogies together. It's kind of like being that kid that may have that you thought you were adopted into a lovely inclusive family and you find out that great 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 grandfather did some foolishness or you know they were part of the slave trade or they were part of what have you and then you realize who you thought you are isn't who you really are and i'm like no that's that's not okay the the silencing of that history is not okay it's just not it's curious because as you're talking i'm thinking so you know, censorship is, you know, the withdrawal or glossing over or papering over Mm -hmm. truth, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. 2X to be shared. So it's an omission. It's not a lie, right? And then I think about the book that you share, people should read, teach it, the lies teachers told me, I think is what you had said it's called. Yes, yes. Is banning, is the banning of books tantamount to lying to your children about history or is it just not sharing parts of it and I'm not necessarily saying one is worse than the other but when we think about Mm. kids about being truthful and honest and you know and then our then adults in their lives are withholding information from them what do you Mm -hmm. think about that well I love that question because here's here's what I hear as a a fellow parent listening to other parents, because I think I shared with you, this is, um, well, last year I was on vacation with some of my girlfriends who all have school-aged children. And I'm thinking, this is a, a group of black women that I'm sitting around the table with. I'm thinking that we all are, of course, different, but yet we have a similar framework of how we think about educating our children. And I'm thinking, Oh, we're, we're 
pretty liberal around this table, not even politically liberal, just open to difference and um, hearing people out. And I found that I was extremely conservative, uh, extremely liberal compared to their conservatism, because the intention was, to answer your question, the intention was not to avoid teaching their kids about these topics. It was they wanted control over when that happened. And so, for example, when we we started talking about um, we were specifically talking about um, LGBT lived experiences and perspectives and so forth. And they weren't anti LGBT. They were. Uh, um, how can I say, they were thinking through when it's most appropriate and they wanted to be the ones to do it. And so, and, and I don't know what will be the end result of that with my girlfriends, but what I am saying is that I think it's a common feeling of, even for those who agree with these particular voices being heard, they want control and they have the best intentions of, oh, let me come back to it with my own kids. And they never come back to it. That's my problem with it is that, okay, well, your kid is in second grade. You don't want to introduce pronouns to them. So I want to have control over that and I'll get back to it later. And the parents never do. Even the best intentioned parents never do. Do you think, though, that most parents are actually thinking they're going to circle back to some of this information? Well, that's my point, though. I think they're kicking it down the street with this best intention of, oh, well, well, we'll get back to it. And so here's my question in response to the question is, okay, you don't want your kids to know about uh, gender neutral pronouns in second grade, but then you're still pissed off when we circle back, when teachers circle back in ninth grade, for example. Well, how long are you going to kick the can down the road? You know, at, at that point, you're now telling me that, okay, you're feigning interest in sharing it, even the best ones, the best parents, the parents that are most interested in diversity, but yet still don't do it. And so if you're not going to do it, and trained, educated, I'm not going to speak for all of them, but they have a certain level where they have to be certified in their state to teach certain topics and at a certain level. If you're telling me as a parent that's not an, a professional educator that you're going to get back to these difficult topics, I call bullshit because even if you do, who says that you're giving it the appropriate treatment for your child in that grade? Right. You are not a K through 12 teacher for that very reason. Yeah, but some of the stuff I've been reading is that part of the uh, motivation, I mean, obviously the motivation is white supremacy when it comes to race, but the other part of the motivation is um, it's not developmentally or age appropriate to teach certain topics, right? And it's the parents who are making that choice, which is just, you know, sharing kind of what you had said. And Mm -hmm. I'm thinking... The the decision about what is or is not developmentally or age appropriate is going to vary wildly, right, based on your lived experience, based on the way that you see the world. So um, it should, I think it should really lie with educators, just as you're saying, um, because, you know, but I don't know, I'm thinking like, I just, because I didn't grow up here, it's hard to put myself in a position of a child, a white child who maybe never got taught properly about racism in this country. And then I find that out later in life, that lack of exposure is obviously Mm. going to contribute to my denial, right? But am I going to feel betrayed by the education system, by my parents that no one thought to tell me that, you know? 
look, I, I was born and raised here in the United States, have been black for all 43 years and still felt betrayed about stuff that wasn't taught to me about my blackness. So because I didn't learn about that until much later on in college where, you know, they're talking about to um, banning to kill a mockingbird, for example, hell, I'm not worried about them banning it in K through 12 because I didn't get to it anyway until college. (laughs) I mean, I I truly didn't. Um, And so some of these um, titles weren't on the table for various reasons and you don't know what you don't know um, until you're exposed to it and then you show up to college and your your college friends have already read it and you've never heard of it right so you know I I do think that there can be that I, I love that you use the language around betrayal that feeling of betrayal of why didn't someone teach me this Mm-hmm. And so you don't want to call out your parents because you love them and you feel like they did the best they could. And so, of course, everyone blames everything on underpaid, uh, under-resourced teachers. Right. right. Here we are again. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Uh. I mean, yeah. I mean, my sense is these books that are being banned are being banned by predominantly white communities, predominantly white school boards. And there isn't an intention to circle back, right? They just see these um, right, right. as inflammatory and divisive. And it is teaching our children that they're different from each other. And that mm-hmm. is um, appropriate, right? So they're essentially peddling a position of um, colorblindness, right? That that's yes. the most appropriate way to go. Gender blindness, mm-hmm. colorblindness, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and... And that's where I think, <laughs> okay, so Lisa, we've, I think we've somewhat answered the question. You get colorblind adults because you have colorblind children that you choose yeah. not to educate. Right. So when you have an adult that shows up to work that says, oh, I want to treat everyone the same and I want to be equal and not equitable and ignore history, that's how you get them because we didn't say anything when they were kids. Right. And so, you know, so then here we are and we wonder why, oh, why is this adult so insensitive to XYZ identity groups? They've never been required to hear their stories, to learn more about their experiences, much much less to think about how their own identities um, have clashed against or intersected with those. And so therefore they have never in life had a, a critical thought around these topics. And we wonder why they're so ignorant yeah. when they get to work. Yeah. Yeah, of course they're ignorant because no one has brought this up. Of course, we we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be. Yeah, it's just um, it's to to think about our an episode couple of weeks ago. It's a bit kumbaya, right? Like that that ah, kind right, of like right, right, that right, right, whitewashed right. way of we just want everyone to get along, and that's always an articulation from people in power, right? Because ultimately that maintains Mm -hmm. their position of power. So colorblindness maintains white supremacy, right? Gender blindness Mm -hmm. maintains male supremacy. Um, And so I think that it is, um, oh, I'm just pausing here because I'm thinking about colorblindness and gender blindness. and whether or not that using the term blindness is ableist. And I think it might be. So I need to- I think it might be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. I hear you. Yeah. I just, yeah. And it's, so it's, it's self-perpetuating, isn't it? Because you then have those children Mm -hmm. who grow up with that same philosophy, having never been taught to critically think about their racial identity and how it intersects with past and present. And then they just pass that then down to their kids and so on and so forth. And so you continue, that's actually more divisive, I think, right? Because then you never end up with um, 
racial healing, racial dialogue, um, you know, uh, an integrated understanding of the complexities of history and how that affects who you are today, because it's that separation to mm-hmm. say that to talk about race and color is divisive is itself mm-hmm. divisive. Right, right, exactly. And, and that's why we end up continuing to kick this can down the road. And, you know, I just feel like there's a better way to do things because, you know, Lisa, on one hand, I don't want to exclude important parts of history. And let me be clear, I also don't want some of these very difficult topics in the hands of some teachers, I would not say the majority, but some teachers who are not prepared to teach or facilitate on those topics either. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm kind of in both. And so the, the reason why I bring that up, Lisa, is because I think many, many, many podcasts ago, we brought up um, at the time, I think this was last year when TMC was, uh, they were actually re-airing banned movies and they had very enlightening discussions why some of the classics that all of us really liked are now no longer appropriate and, and what's problematic about them, in fact. And so that whole silencing piece, I'm just wondering, <laughs> I'm wondering if something similar can happen with books, with other types of media that we really need to discuss. Um, I even saw Nicole Hannah-Jones, who um, who curated the 1619 Project. She said that, you know, what would it look like if my second leg of my book tour was to bring all of these banned books with me for discussion, right? Well, I trust those discussions of those very difficult books in the hands of someone with the brain of Nicole Hannah-Jones, because obviously she's equipped to do that. Um, But what would it look like if we had that happen? Uh, You know, there has to be a way to make sure that some of these conversations, books, multimedia are presented earlier so that we don't have, I think it was Frederick Douglass that said, I, I rather I rather educate a, a child than a broken adult, something to that effect. I, I feel like that's where we end up if we don't do this stuff earlier. Yeah. Um, and then we end up swim, biking, running beside people that don't understand who people are and have yeah. no consideration of it because they've never been forced to do so. Yeah, I also think it's like a, such an underestimation of the uh, resilience and capacity of children um, in the way that they conceive um, of the world, right? Because uh, to say yes. that you're going to make my white kid feel bad and that's not appropriate. Well, maybe feeling bad isn't such a bad thing, right? Because, you know, we've talked about mm. how white guilt can be really troubling um, and problematic, but we've also... Um, talked about how some guilt is needed because then it creates an emotional and empathetic connection that can spur you to action. Mm, mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, handled with the right level of facilitation and care, you know, I think, sure, your white kid is probably going to feel a bit crappy about it, but that's, that's useful, right? If channeled effectively, if channeled, let's just not avoid it. Let's not censor it because you think that your child is not capable of handling the reality of the United States history and it's, you know, tails into today. Well, and, you know, I have um, an associate of mine that runs this program that calls it's called social justice kids. And Molly is, she's PhD as well. She does a great job as a white parent helping folks to rethink how to educate their kids. And what I think is really crucial is that, you know, through programs like hers and others, it it gets really interesting because you're right. I think we always 
question whether kids can handle it. I mean, we did the same thing. I know this is controversial too. We did the same thing with masking. You know, everyone walked around and said, oh, the kids aren't going to comply. Well, the kids are happy to comply. It's the adults that have the problem. The kids are just fine with it. Um, And I do think you're right. We do underestimate the resilience of kids to take in information because we we don't have these, um, (laughs) we, we don't prolong these conversations when it's about any other group. That's what's bothersome to me about it is we don't prolong these conversations when it's about any other group. And so, you know, I think sometimes these stories are left out because people paint them as divisive. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they're left out because maybe people are identifying with the fact that maybe I'm not equipped to have this conversation. Um, But I, I do think that, you know, we keep kicking it down the road and we never have any intent to get back to it. And so we end up having kids that are really ignorant adults later on in life. And, and that's what I don't want to happen. Right. Right. Yeah. Because they're the folks who are in our run clubs and our triathlon clubs, our cycling clubs, um, you know, and it's so much harder. I think about learning a language, right. And it's so much harder to learn a new language in your, in yes. adult as compared to in childhood. So yes. And a new language um, is a completely different way of thinking, particularly if you're learning a language that doesn't even have the same alphabet, right? Like the, that's right. So how do you, so then you're then introducing issues of racism and sexism and homophobia and the ways in which kind of the uh, patriarchy operates. How do you Mm -hmm. read to integrate that information into your worldview is much more painful because That's you right. have to unlearn so much. So these conversations that might be happening in endurance sport clubs are just like monumentally bigger and more difficult oh, oh, if yes. stuff hadn't been censored in the first place when all these people were children. Oh, you, okay. We, I just had a mind blowing moment here. A mind okay, blowing moment. Okay. Share. The, the reason why that's a mind blowing moment for, for me, I'm with you 100%. It makes me recall even my censorship of swimming, right? Um, Because most Mm -hmm. people know I didn't learn how to swim until I was, what, 35 years old and very pregnant with my youngest son, Kendrick. And it was a censorship process of my family saying, no, don't go near water. All water is dangerous. Things can happen to you. Be afraid of water. This is going to harm you. So stay away from it. And so fast forward from being a child to 35, trying to learn how to do all of that, which is the hardest thing ever. I think if you put a baby in the water compared to putting my 35-year-old self in the water that didn't want to put my face in, it it was ugly. It was painful. I spent countless mornings on the side of the pool crying because I could not string any strokes together to make a lap. It was extremely painful to learn later on. Whereas when I talked to my other friends that were in triathlon or others that were, I'm not even saying they were competitive swimmers. They were just, you know, swimmers that could survive in water on vacation. Um, And the simplest things to them were the most difficult things for me, like putting your face in the water or taking a breath, or even the trust of flipping on your back to float in the water, which seems to be the easiest thing on the planet to do unless you're 25 and have been told or or 35 and been told your whole life to stay away from water. Right. And so water was censored for me for many years and it was a struggle figuring it out. And now that I've figured it out, I love it. I do it all the time. I 
had to spend a lot of time reckoning with that. And the fear of water never goes away, even when you got a rack of metals on the wall, because you still have the roots of censorship there. And so I'm just wondering how that compares when you're dealing with all the isms that nobody ever told you about. And now you got to face it when people gave a major concerted effort to keep you away from those topics. That yeah. all of that just exploded in my brain here for a <sighs> It is. It, well, it's a major concerted effort to censor information that is, I think, critical to be a full and aware human being. Um, yes. yes. Yeah. And yes, so, yes, and then yes, lingers. Yes. So, your fear of the water doesn't ever disappear completely. You've learned to manage it. And now you're enable, you're able to engage in swimming in a way that you never were before. But it's still in right. the back of your brain, right? Because it's so oh, absolutely. ingrained. Yeah. Absolutely. That it's yeah. so ingrained and it's it's part of who you are. It's it going back to your language anal- analogy, it's almost like it's your native language to stay away from water. So facing water and going out in it is the exact opposite of everything. Your body, your brain, everything tells you that you should do because you've spent years staying away from it. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, given that it's you're right, it's not. And, and I would imagine we could, you know, string that analogy on a little bit further with the isms too. It's that, yes, those isms may always be there in you, but you're having to manage those isms. Like I, I manage fear every time I do a swim, it never goes away. It's there and I manage it appropriately. And I have steps that I use to manage it. Maybe that could be the case with some of this uh, responses to censorship where people actually finally are exposed to this information, then how do you continue to manage what you used to know versus what you now know? Right. So, okay. So I'm, I'm going to jump back the women for try Facebook page that had blown up, right. Because there was a, yes. a you know, mass kind of silencing of in particular black women's experience training as a triathlete, which is one of the impetuses for this podcast, obviously, but yes. that, silencing behavior that quote unquote sport and politics are are separate, which we have hopefully debunked for everyone by now. So it's a, it's learned, right? I'm not, not excusing it, but it's a learned behavior because presumably many of those white women who came up with that have Mm -hmm. their whole life been told to stay away from race, right? As a white person, you're Mm. raceless, right? You've never been taught about racism. You've never been taught about the complex history of racism or, you know, maybe you have snippets of it, but you don't have like a kind of like a a through line. Um, And so therefore it's divisive to bring up race in, in the sport context, because I've always been steered away from it and I have no skill and no tools to manage that. I'm just going to continue to censor right, right. so the, right. the the act of censorship yes the act of censorship is more divisive than the conversations that might come out of discussing these quote-unquote controversial mm. narratives mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely and I'm so glad you brought that up I was thinking about that earlier and forgot to bring that up but you're exactly on it um you know that became more divisive and you're right it's the, the first thing I thought of, because I'm, I'm about to make dinner, y'all, for the boys. And the first thing I thought of was, if you don't know how to use the tool of 
discussion and facilitation around these topics, most people shy away, shy away from it. So if my sons don't know how to use a sharp knife, I tell them don't use one at all, right? Versus practicing the skill of getting used to them. Right, right. And so my boys have those little plastic knives that still cut, but they're not dangerous. So they've been practicing with those. Then we work with a little steak knife. Then we work with the next one. We don't do that at all. We just tell people don't touch the knife. Don't, don't go there because you can hurt yourself. Yeah. Well, you can. You can hurt yourself if you don't know what the hell you're doing. And if you don't have someone around you who knows what they're doing. So, you know, I think, you know, yes, this is one of those things where it. I feel like the targeted populations hurt quite a bit in the moment, but everyone hurts down the line. Everybody does because there isn't a discussion right. of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that lack of exposure then leads to adulthood or adults who are ill-equipped to really engage in these discussions and it becomes painful and avoided right. and such. And we see that. So we see that coming up in our sports environment, right? Because we're engaging Hello. in different endurance sports and we're engaging with people who have constantly been told, don't talk about X, don't talk about Y, mm-hmm. right? It's divisive. And so then no exactly. one and you end up with big disputes and arguments in Facebook groups, in your leadership team around how should you move forward? What should you do? And, you know, I'm thinking like some of the big sports like the NBA and the NFL and the WNBA and such and how they're approaching um, their athletes, um, wanting to kind of join the conversation, um, and the, you know, with, um, notes or names or social justice messages on their jerseys. And there's, they have been fairly flexible around that. Um, which actually I'm just thinking about kind of dress and professionalism and whiteness, but that's a conversation for another day. So, uh, right, I think right. that we are seeing a little less censorship in sport. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. when I, back for, back from in the sixties and seventies, when governing bodies would be like, "You can't do it. You can't protest. You can't do anything related to the civil rights movement." You know, that's not allowed. You'll be disqualified, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right, exactly. Well, and look, Lisa, we didn't even really define it, and I'm glad I looked up the definition because I think everything okay. we've said has been in alignment with what. It okay, is. good, good. Censorship is the suppression or prohibition of any parts of books, films, news, et cetera, that are considered obscene, politically unacceptable, or a threat to security. Isn't that interesting? Oh, that is and, interesting. And, and there's been so many things in history that have been deemed threats to, to security. Yep. So for example, yep. when I looked at, um, I've, I've mentioned it several times before on this podcast on one of my new favorite books, The Black Butterfly that speaks of redlining in the city of Baltimore the maps of the cities, of the major cities across the country, they were actually called security maps. Those redlined maps were called security maps because they were meant to keep the security of who? White folks. We know who they were trying to keep security of, right? And so, but but given that, the whole point of censorship securing who will always be the question, right? Yeah, yeah. Who is it securing? Usually it's not people like you and me, Lisa. That's all I'm no, saying. No, no, it's the first, yeah, it's always, I mean, you think about authoritarian governments around the world where there's censorship, it is protecting the folks that have the money and the power, the political influence, right? It isn't protecting the average person who's going about their day, you know, trying to um, make a life for themselves. That's, you know, not uh, not relevant, right? Um, exactly, exactly. Yeah. There you okay. go. This is, this mm-hmm. is, 
good discussion. And I think I would encourage folks who are in endurance sports communities to think about where and how do you see censorship um, pop up in your um, teams, mm-hmm. in your clubs? Do you feel like you are uh, yourself perpetuating this don't talk about blank because of censorship maybe you experienced in school and how mm. lack of discussion um you know, from a younger yeah. age, be affecting the way you engage in these discussions now with your friends and colleagues and um, training partners. Absolutely. So Lisa, I know we always have a hell yeah and a hell no. Nah. Yep, yep, yep. Look. Hell yeah. Hell no. Nah. And we usually have more hell no's than hell yes, but do we want to jump into Minnie Mouse first? Yeah, this think has so. been such a controversy, so. right? Yep. Why are people so upset about Minnie Mouse? What's going on with Disney? So, okay. It's kind of odd that we're having Disney as a hell yeah. Because <laughs> I feel right. that it's just inherently right. contradictory. Um, right. But Disney, or at least some people in Disney, are really trying to make some changes. So there's a couple of things. So Minnie Mouse, um, you may all have seen, has a change of outfit. So she is moving from her dress um, to a black and blue spotted pantsuit. And I guess that's quite controversial in some circles um, with lots of people finding it offensive that Minnie Mouse would be wearing a pantsuit, which blows my mind. I think it's a step in the right direction that she is not wearing a skirt that drops just below her butt. Um, And then... Mm -hmm. In addition to that, uh, Disney, or at least one of the um, granddaughters of one of the founders of Disney, has created a documentary about the um, wage discrimination and the enormous wealth gap that exists between the people that run Disney and the folks that work in the Disney theme parks and such. And so Mm. she is trying to push the envelope in terms of um, the economic oppression that is happening within disney and so you've got this Minnie mouse change plus this so at least some people in disney are are recognizing that they um have some power to change the narrative but Mm, mm -hmm. disney the Minnie mouse thing reminds me of when doctor who um for those who don't know it's a british tv show sci-fi show you know cast its first woman doctor who oh my goodness oh yeah white dudes have a problem with that <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I'm I'm waiting for the same thing to happen though with Black Panther when Black Panther becomes a woman. Um yeah. because in, in the actual uh the actual cartoons um they she, Black Panther was the daughter and the sister of subsequent Black Panthers. So, yeah. Princess Shuri was always was a woman and so I I think people will be surprised those that you know, they hear what they want to hear and they read what they want to read when they read the comics. They they will conveniently forget that part about uh, the lineage of Black oh. Panthers. I'm waiting on that to happen, too. Yeah. 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 Okay. So how about our hell nah for this week? So the hell nah for this week. Lisa, look, I know people think I just stay on this podcast beating up my home state, but they just give me so many easy targets to hit. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. So Virginia we got a whole lot of stuff going on. Okay. So no masking. Uh, there is, they actually had a, um, a Facebook post in Henrico County, which is the County that surrounds Richmond, Virginia, 
um, about peaceful walk-ins around the masking piece because yeah, there's conflicts around who should do what. Teachers and principals would prefer for children to wear a mask, obviously. The governor said, oh, leave it to the parents. <laughs> yeah, the majority of the state is red, which means they are anti-masking and some of them still are anti-everything in relation to COVID existing. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm sitting back in my lounge chair, folding my arms, waiting to see the numbers spike up in my home state because I know that's what's gonna happen as a result of this. Um, and then the other piece, since we've been talking about censorship in this particular episode, is, oh, now we got a snitch line, Lisa. We oh have oh a tip line where parents can call in and report teachers who are teaching divisive content, Lisa. Oh, my goodness. What the heck? Now, now who gets to determine what is divisive content and what's not? If we want to talk about math and I like science, that could be considered divisive, but you know what's going to happen. Oh my if gosh, talk yes. About, if you talk about anything regardless, in regards to race, et cetera, and what's going to happen is that now that the governor has, has stated all of this and set this tip line up, all the school boards are going to be so freaking busy because every parent is going to be challenging their decision-making around curriculum. And I'm not saying I agree with all their decisions. I'm just saying that this opens the floodgates for everything yep. they do yep. to be critiqued. Teachers to have even more pressure than they already do because they're, they've got one foot teaching in the classroom, one yep. foot teaching at home. If they, which I know they already do, teacher shortage in Virginia, watch it get worse. Oh I'm, I'm no longer surprised. So to mm -hmm. my Commonwealth of Virginia that I have a love-hate relationship with, I'm going to pray that the four years go quickly with Youngkin. That's all I'm going to say. That's all Ugh, I'm going to say. Yeah, right. Because didn't he like ban critical race theory that's not even taught in the schools because he's so stupid. He doesn't even understand what it is. But I guess it's probably not even about that, right? Because he just wants to gin up the, the base or whatever, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. Anything as I, to stir him up. Anything as, to stir him up. As I texted you, F that guy. <laughs> exactly that guy i'm like oh incredible this is the, one of the one of the times where in my home state i'm very grateful that there's only one term governors four years get the hell out of there so yeah, yeah that's i'm grateful true. for that that's true yeah i am very great and we've had some good ones but when it comes to the bad ones i'm like well four years get the heck up out of there so anyway, well, this has been a great episode, Lisa. I know we build a plane as we fly often, but we this do, one was yeah. a good one. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually given me a lot of like aha moments as we talked it through. So hopefully it has for our listeners too. The Unfazed Podcast and all things Feisty Triathlon are grateful to be supported by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker cuts through the noise of diet and wellness trends by analyzing your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to provide you a personalized, science-backed, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is a simpler, cheaper, and more convenient option than traditional blood tests, and their test includes biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from the traditional option. What we love about them? They don't just give you data, they provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. Inside Tracker is offering 25% off their entire store to the Feisty Triathlon community. To claim your offer, go to insidetracker.com slash feisty triathlon. All 
Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. Mm-hmm.